0: quick note before we start the show that this podcast has been taken over. We have handed over the reins of the Study Religion podcast for this episode to our master's students in religion and culture. Okay, here's the show. Hey,
1: what do you study? Study the of religion religion in the Caribbean
2: and the American South. I study acts of identification and social formation.
0: I study contemporary religious identity in India. theism Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and Holocaust and genocide.
3: History of the field and the politics of classification. To
0: philosophy of religion and the intersection of development studies and religious
3: studies. Religion and popular culture and religious texts. What do you study?
4: So, as you may have heard in the previous episode of Study Religion, we, the master students in the department, have taken over, at least for this episode. In our Digital Humanities course, headed by Dr. Michael J. Altman, the ominous boys whom traditionally host this podcast, we have been looking at the material, culture, and ephemera produced by the American Academy of Religion, or otherwise known as the AAR. Um, and this material and ephemera has been produced um, for the purpose of their annual conference. You know, And the AAR is often considered the central professional organization for scholars in the study of religion, especially scholars in the study of religion that are based in um, the North Americas. So because it is the big tent that unites scholars that would otherwise see themselves as entirely opposed possibly or at least very distant in their research interests, because of this unifying quality of the AAR, its annual meeting became interesting data for um, our foundation's course to understand how the field of religious studies is characterized both by the AAR and also the scholars within that organization. So my cohort and I, um, as you'll hear later, analyzed everything from plenary addresses to tote bags to get at this issue. And as um, Dr. Altman or Mike has previously mentioned here, we've collaborated to um, make our Acquired data publicly accessible through our digital collection titled AA Artifacts, um, which is currently being hosted on Mike's domain name if you want to go check it out. So, for this podcast project, um, we sent out requests for personal stories about the AAR, but also began to analyze presidential addresses all the way from uh, 2013 through 2016. So we didn't include uh, the presidential address from this year, because when we started working on the project, it had not taken place yet. So. Today, um, the MA students from the Religious Studies Department will be hijacking this podcast to use our findings to get at this broader issue of the development of the field of religious studies and how this development is cataloged by the data that we've gathered from the AAR. So now, without further ado, here's my colleagues Emma and Sarah to discuss the role and duties of a scholar and the nature of the study of religion in regards to the presidential addresses
5: from the AAR. So Emma and I are here to talk about the past four presidential addresses, and I think we're going to start with 2016's, which was Serene Jones, um, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary, and the theme that year was revolutionary love. Um, Her address... Did some interesting things. Um, It was delivered less than two weeks after Trump was elected president, and so you can see a lot of that reflected in what she talks about and how she talks about the future of the AAR and what the goals of AAR people should be as professors in the classroom. So Emma, what are your thoughts in general about Serene's address?
1: So like you said, there is a lot of themes that, you know, reflect the uh, sentiments of the nation post-Trump election, and she takes a very emotional stance on the role of the AAR, and even the title, The Revolutionary Love, I think, you know, is meant to bring up an emotional response from the audience. Um, And the role of the AAR as something pertaining to social justice, which is, you know, not something you would usually associate with the
5: American Academy of Religion. Yeah, definitely an interesting move.
2: And I also want to say a final thanks to all my Union friends and my friends from all over the country, uh, my friends who don't know anything about the study of religion but like to talk about love, they like to talk about revolution, the people at Union who got sick of me talking about revolutionary love, and particularly all of the people a different, across a multitude of faith traditions who shared a commitment to social justice and social action, who talked about what revolutionary love means in these very traditions.
5: So we see even in her introduction, even before she started her actual address. She's already in this mindset of the goal is social justice and doing the things for the good of the people, which is sort of interesting coming from a professional organization that you wouldn't normally necessarily think of um, academics having to serve a social justice role. But clearly, Serene Jones thinks that this is a duty of academics especially in her mind especially academics and the study of religion
1: yeah I think it's interesting that you said the word duty because I feel the same way like she feels it's the burden of academics to guide you know other people in the right direction but she definitely takes a I mean it's definitely political it's politically driven and you know, there's It's just an interesting take on like the academy as being responsible for guiding people in the right direction which i think comes up in other presidential addresses as well or at least one that i can think of
5: this reminds me too of something i think i mentioned in class when we first talked about this is that like i can't get over the fact that this was delivered less than two weeks after trump was elected like clearly this speech would have taken a very different form if what everybody thought was going to happen had happened. Um, yeah, And I think we'll get to that more towards the end of her speech, but I think that's an important thing to keep in mind throughout the entire thing because I don't think it would have taken such an emotional and political turn if it hadn't been for that context. Or at least it would
1: have seen some kind of, you know being proud or being hopeful for the future and feeling accomplished in our, you know,
5: right. ethical right. cuz the phrase revolutionary love couldn't be taken either as a call to revolutionary love or as a pat on the back. Exactly. So
2: I'm especially mindful tonight of those of you who teach heroically in classrooms across the United States but particularly in the middle that are filled with Trump supporters. Let's say it, young neo-fascists who don't even know they're young neo-fascists. What a challenge it is to teach religion and philosophy of religion and history in those contexts. You will be outrightly cursed and demeaned by your own students. We know that. But there are others there that will listen. Your heroism is essential, and we appreciate it.
5: Can we talk about the fact that she uh, used the word heroism? <laughs> like, so many things to say about this. <laughs> uh, go for it. Talk
1: to me. It's so divisive. Like, How can you say that if you want to completely alienate, you know, half of the country that voted for Trump? Like, you know, as disturbing as, you know, some people, myself included, may think that is, like, it's just taking a highly political stance and not even, like appropriate political stance it's just like you can't call people fascists <laughs> it's so, oh my god it's so it's a lot
5: yeah it's nuts like there's <laughs> uh, it's this very particular like view that it's our like moral duty to correct these young manipulated minds as if that's not its own manipulation yeah and again whether or not you agree with that isn't really the point it's that even in saying this is our duty, which I keep coming back to, but even in saying that, it's already alienating those people that you're trying to reach or whatever. such a, like, it's such a problematic word choice. Like, I feel like she could have yeah. worded it
1: differently. Like,
5: can you imagine somebody who, like, a, say Mike Altman. For example, was in this room, heard this speech, and said, all right, it is my duty to go correct those young neo-fascist minds. And so he walks into class the next time he has class, and he's like, all right, young (laughs) neo-fascists, let's talk about your mistakes. Like, that's just not okay.
1: And then, like, you know when she was talking about, um, like, your students will stand up against you. Like, they'll do this. Yeah, if you call
5: them fascists.
1: (laughs) And, like, it's like this whole stance of, like, they're going to rebel, they're going to fight, like, they're going to challenge you, but stay strong and, like, persist and change their minds. And it's like, okay, that's not... Like, imposing your own beliefs on students has never been the right way to win over people's minds. Yeah. Like, you have to get down on their level and talk with them. And if you want to, like, treat them like adults and have an actual discussion with them, I think that would benefit more than going in and, you know yeah standing strong and separating yourselves from them and realizing that you are more ethically evolved than they are and like imagine if like you know someone on the opposite political spectrum of her was saying this
5: yeah if they uh, were yeah like if Kellyanne Conway
1: was saying that
5: we would freak out and like (laughs) we would not be down with that so why would we
1: be down with this exactly like you have to be objective about this and kind of not Right, let your personal opinions guide something like a presidential speech that isn't targeted towards, like this is a professional organization.
5: Yeah, and like that's, I mean, obviously, like we're taking our own particular stance about it, and I think you and I both have strong feelings about this address more so than the other ones. Yeah, Um, just
1: fascist threw me off that word. (laughs) Yeah, it's
5: it's clearly crafted because of an emotional response to the political context Mm -hmm. i would be surprised if she delivered this address now yeah now that we're further into what it means to be in a trump presidency in the trump era or whatever those first Um, few weeks
1: were very emotionally charged which like given in this context it probably wouldn't have been
5: that surprising in november but looking back on it right because we're being exposed to it now for the first time but if we had seen it (laughs) right but if we had seen this address when it happened it may not have felt as out of place as we're reading it now which is why i keep going back to the context of like it wasn't even two weeks yeah and it really makes me wonder before trump got elected what her speech looked like because obviously it wasn't this so do you have any further thoughts about this address concluding thoughts.
1: Yeah, I guess like when, if we talk about what this means for the field to sum it up, it's this call to not just activism but political activism right? in the context of the American Academy of Religion, which is definitely a unique vision for what the organization should look like.
5: That was <laughs> 2016's address. Should we move on? Moving on. Okay. So Thomas tweeted from UNC Chapel Hill
1: gave the 2015 AAR presidential address, and it was titled Valuing the Study of Religion Improving Difficult Dialogues Within and Beyond the AAR's Big Tent.
5: And so like, the point of this talk was basically um, there's theologians and there's non-theologians and however else people classify themselves in this organization and we should all just get along exactly basically
1: there are different values in the study of religion and it's worthwhile to take other people's values seriously and <laughs> um yeah consider them as all relevant to religious studies as a field as a whole
5: right which is not a bad thing so this uh, this is like the professional version of you fam Right. Exactly. <laughs> and you were like, this was your favorite one, right? Like you agreed with this.
1: Yeah. I feel like out of all the presidential addresses, the main message was not only, um, I guess, communication within the field and a recognition of different values in the field, but also interdisciplinary mm-hmm. um, work, which, I mean, I find valuable as something, you know that should be prioritized in academia because pushing one agenda is obviously going to isolate other groups so
5: right yeah and like I see that too because the AAR isn't the meeting isn't ever just the AAR it's the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature Mm -hmm. and so like you have a bunch of people who couldn't give care less about colonialism or like whatever um, because they're and I mean like they may be interested if you're a good colonial scholar who like knows how to present your work in an interesting and whatever kind of way but they're in the depths of whatever like Trinitarian theology and so that particular approach in the field isn't their jam which is I think kind of groovy. Like, yeah. why not have a bunch of different people doing their own different thing? But then there's also this. Like, you have to take into account the history of the are and the field of religious studies as a whole, because obviously, it's been dominated by Christian theologians. Yeah, for a very long time. Um, so I'm down with the like UDU thing, as long as like the UDU thing also isn't just like non-theologians accepting theologians, but also theologians letting non-theologians do their own interesting work.
3: We can ready ourselves for that exchange, one in which we state the reasons our judgments are warranted and actively listen to our interlocutors' counterarguments by committing to the principle of fallibilism, not regarding our own conclusions as free from criticism, and by cultivating the requisite virtues, including empathy, humility, and generosity In other words, inculcate habits of thinking, feeling, and doing that enact our principled openness as we try to understand the other. But it's about more than the humility and empathy. We should also demonstrate the virtue of receptive generosity.
5: Yeah, so
1: this kind of language shows, you know, the very, I mean, it's also emotional, but in a different way Mm -hmm. than the 2016 address. So, you know, empathy generosity compassion um it's definitely a more
5: but it's about like empathy and compassion towards each other yeah exactly it's not this like moral as we saw in the 2016 address it's not like this moral fight between you the professor and your students it's yeah like i see these disagreements in the field of you professors against each other so like be nice to each other please
1: yeah instead of like a call to political action it's like a call for understanding and you know making an intentional effort to get to know you know the beliefs and ideas of the academic other right like it's
5: political within the organization rather than like political in the like national politics political and it's I think it's a type of political that you and I would agree with in that like to be a good professional person you gotta be able to get along with your colleagues even if you disagree
1: and like he is advocating for this position of tolerance in the Academy which I agree with because no one's going to listen to you if you don't take the time to listen to them right
3: the study of religion yields many goods There isn't just one answer to the question of the discipline's value. To improve our chances of success in exchanges with stakeholders, we can cite the evidence we have, but it would be helpful to get more information, perhaps collaborating with other ACLS organizations to commission a new survey that would give us more comparative data about the relative value of the religion major. And wherever we say in our fraught internal dialogues about our competing values, As we negotiate with campus administrators and respond to public critics, I hope we focus on the commitments we share. Most important, wherever we stand in this big and clamorous tent, we stand with others who agree about the intrinsic and pragmatic value of the study of religion.
5: There is a point in there, I forget exactly what he said, but he was basically calling for um, this, a look at the religion major, relative to other majors and i'm he he wants to take this into interdisciplinary approach beyond religious studies and theology but outside of that towards other humanities and i guess potentially sciences um which you know i just love (laughs) (laughs) i love um Because I don't think anybody should ever, like, see their work within one field, Um, because I think you're alienating a lot of good work if you exclude other disciplines, and I think interdisciplinary work is an awesome thing.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that I really liked his address, because it didn't, like, lock in on, you know, one value, which we saw as a theme in a lot of other presidential addresses where like this is what we should do this is the stand we should take and instead he's like no we need to realize that there are numerous values that we all hold within you know this academy and this organization and recognizing that is you know the key to like operating better or like you know just really I guess (laughs) like just being better academics yeah and I agree with that
5: so our values as an organization are not one or two things but our values are the values of the collective whole
1: we value multiple values we're all tied (laughs) (laughs) so Lori Zoloth gave the 2014 AAR presidential address, and it was titled Interrupting Your Life and Ethics for the Coming Storm. Um, which, you know, being an ethicist is really reflected in her speech because she talks primarily about our responsibility to each other, this constant interruption that forces us to welcome the unknown with hospitality. Um, and our, this goes back to a lot of what we've seen in other presidential addresses of duty, and so the duty of scholars to be present in the public sphere.
5: Okay, so it's more, um, self-reflective than the other ones, and it's, um, yeah. more about yourself changing than about something outside of you changing
1: right? yeah so i guess like we as scholars recognizing this interruption as something valuable okay and like how if we i guess if we all make this move then we will be better academics so yeah i guess i guess you could okay. say it's more geared towards the individual than than the collective but i think like it's definitely you know if if we do focus or if we all make this individual move, then it'll affect the collective and affect society and the organization and things like that. Letting the
2: danger and the power and the endless mercy of religion to be excellently told is the task of the scholar of religion. To teach religion excellently is to engage in the public examination of things. The task of the scholar since Socrates spoke this truth to his academy, notes Arendt. And our teaching, if it is actually parhesia, should raise the questions that will doubtless interrupt the usual way of things, which in our academy would mean the disruption of the institutions that govern us, the ratio and the episteme of the marketplace, a marketplace devoted to continuous expansion, whatever the cost.
1: I thought I th- I saw a lot of themes similar to the 2015 presidential address except focusing a lot more on religion. So there's she goes on after saying like we have a unique role as scholars of religion. And she goes on, I made notes of, you know, her four powerful capacities of religion mm-hmm. which are confront the terror of death, gives people the ability to believe in their own power, allows for prophecy and religions are without borders so because of this unique you know like because religion is a unique i guess discourse or act or you know all of these things it opens the doors for us to have a very special presence in the academic field which it, which is a big claim.
5: Yeah. And I guess my question from that is, like, wouldn't an English scholar think that their role was unique? Yeah. And so, like, what makes the fact that we study religion different?
1: Yeah. And she would say it's this, like, this, you know, powerful, unknown, like, kind of... Mm -hmm. attitude their religion offers that no other discipline offers which you know it's obvious that she is targeting those in the audience Mm -hmm. and it's not this call for I mean like yes interdisciplinary yes the unknown the other but for the people in that room so it's kind of we do have this duty to be present in the academic sphere because we can offer insights that other disciplines can't.
5: Right. Which is and interesting, I, but. Yeah. And I guess, like, if you're a professor in a classroom of, like, 18 and 19 year olds trying to teach them about stuff that they've n- maybe not encountered outside of, at most, whatever Sunday school they got. So it's sort of this thing where, like, you're dealing with sensitive material because the students handle it sensitively. Not necessarily because it's like its own sensitive thing, like that's its own different argument. But if you allow yourself as a scholar of religion to be um, changed by your interaction with the other, you have to recognize that you have a responsibility as, at least in the role of professor, to your students um, to teach them well, I guess. Mm Yeah. Yeah not Um, call them neo-fascists i keep coming back to that i'm sorry you can keep coming back to that because that's not (laughs) easy
1: um yeah so i i mean i like her speech i do think that there may be a little too much emphasis on religion being
5: this you know unique special thing yeah and i mean like I think that comes from her being an ethicist, though. Yeah. I mean, ethicists are like into like religion being. I like ethics. I love ethics, but like,
1: it's definitely, you know, it's just a speech not meant for, you know, other scholars, but it does like, you know, it evokes pride in being a religious studies scholar in an environment where religion isn't really taken seriously Mm -hmm. and I think that she's trying like not that it's not you know regarded as a legitimate academic field but But usually people don't reference religion as like oh let's go ask the religious studies scholar what they think about colonialism.
5: There's this thing I've noticed outside of religious studies and academics where they just sort of take religion as a given um, and it's not even Like like history right and it's not even like a um an intentional move on their part. They just don't really recognize that religious studies is a field and that maybe they should cons- consult a scholar of religion before saying like Hinduism at the time of colonial rule, blah blah blah, like cuz there's all sorts of claims that they're making there that they may not be aware of. Yeah. Um and I think that's a good point about this address because she's sort of getting at that point that like this is a legitimate field that if we as scholars in this field treat it well then people outside of the field will treat it well as yeah.
1: well and like recognizing that religious studies has something more to offer than theology right. And like the nature of religion and like studying religion opens doors for new kinds of um you know, theory and um, just like perspectives that you wouldn't have otherwise, and that mm-hmm. have historically been ignored in the academy. Right. And um, yeah, I think it would be like you know when she says that um, that we need participation and we need to disrupt the institutions that govern us. Um, And I think it's cool that she sees religion as able to do this. I don't know how true that is or whether religion should be prioritized over other disciplines. I don't know if she's saying that or not, but I definitely think she's trying to emphasize that religion has this potential just as well as any other field.
5: Right. I can sort of see how this led into the 2015 address, too. Yeah.
1: I thought it was really neat. I, I love ethics. I love this kind of stuff. So I found it very inspiring and um, definitely a unique insight whether or not, you know, her claims about religion as being something um, separate and distinct and it's like fundamental qualities or fundamental modes of research is true or not. Mm-hmm. But... It definitely opens the doors for some investigation into what that might be or examples of this, mm-hmm. which I, I would love to look into.
5: Yeah. Okay, great.
1: Cool, moving on. Let's move on to the last one. So this is the 2013 AAR Presidential Address by John Esposito, and it's called Islam in the Public Square. So to give a brief background on this... um. He talks about the ways we think and talk about Islam in the public sphere and how this can be problematic and how scholars of religion can change this. And his speech, you know, looking at the broad ideas of his speech, I got that as scholars of religion, it is our duty to take our findings and research and make it available to the public so that the public can have a more complete understanding
5: of religions and whatnot. Um, it sort of has this underlying like even if he doesn't say it has this underlying um, moral political activist call that I think we see much more explicitly in the 2016 address and um, that like it's our moral duty to inform, which is obviously a different flavor, but... Um, it's more
1: of, like, a civic duty, like, instead of, Yeah, like,
5: not necessarily political, well, but...
1: Yeah, like, the way he's framing it, you know, we did see... We saw moral
5: mm-hmm. in
1: Zoloth. We saw political in Serene Jones. And now, him, we see it as, like, our duty as citizens and, like, you know, our you know what our civic duty calls us to do as scholars because we have to take ourselves as you know our academic duty and also our civic duty which requires you know our our research becoming available to the public which is interesting
5: right and like arguably this is something that you could pick up and deliver to um a conference of historians right right? because especially in our current political climate of like what counts as and not just our political climate, but also like what I study and write about for my thesis, but um, of like what gets to count as legitimate history and what the dominant narrative is. Right.
3: Well, as both scholars, we provide data that's important for people to understand the context. And as citizens, we should be out there also applying that data to and raising issues to real life situations. If we're not the go-to place and we're still not there, Media does not immediately call the AAR as if we're the privileged place, even though we have that kind of bureau set up. We need to address that.
1: So yeah, here he's just reinforcing that we need to keep, you know, putting our scholarship out there. And then he also recognizes that we aren't, or or that the AAR is not cited often in media and that, you know, reporters don't go to the AAR to get information on you know x y and z Mm -hmm. and that we have to constantly work to reach that point right so the media usually turns to historical events so like you know when a terrorist attack happens they'll cite other terrorist attacks but they don't really say oh let's talk about islam as a whole um let's just look at this one specific event like you wouldn't say that Westboro Baptist Church is an accurate depiction of Christianity because we, you know, America is predominantly Christian. But America doesn't have that much exposure with the Muslim world. So it's, you know, we form our opinions of Islam based on what affects us.
5: Right. And like what we see, what we're exposed to, which is often what we see in the news.
1: So we need to be exposed to these like, you know, not more complete but more like
5: more complex right it's like yeah
1: yeah exactly like you know all of these different ideas and conceptions and like you know examples of Islam that don't have this violent nature just as we wouldn't say you know all Christians are homophobic and offensive
5: right and so like it becomes sort of a question of balance between um, other examples of, if we're taking Esposito's examples, other examples of Islam, but also at the same time getting somebody like Esposito who studies Islam in there to say, these are all flavors of this thing that we have come to call Islam, and maybe there's more um, going on here than just religious belief mm-hmm. in this event that we're talking about
1: yeah like what happened for this organ like isis to become so big and so prominent and like it just it goes beyond extremism it's like what was happening in the middle east for this group right. to come about. like there's so much isis involved. didn't just come out of nowhere yeah it was like this whole political and like i mean like and also religious conflict that has been going on in the middle east for you know decades it's not just cut and dry here's an extremist organization that came out of the blue it's just
5: right and if you go so narrow as to only talk about religious motivation then you have absolutely no understanding of why isis exists right
1: and someone with this you know who's a scholar of islam has that kind of background and like you know this goes back to like inter like the value of interdisciplinary um, you know, engagement of getting the context.
5: Right. So what are our concluding thoughts about John Esposito's address in 2013?
1: Yeah, I guess, like, just going back to the duty of academics to inform the public, which is interesting because, like, that just ties into all of these addresses as having Like, what is our responsibility? And, like, what is the responsibility of the AAR? And even further, what is the responsibility of scholars? Mm -hmm. And for him, that is to keep doing what we're doing, but, you know, getting it out there and publishing and becoming, like, a reliable source or, like, a reference source for the public sphere, as in, like, media, you know, news, like, just... How we get our information every day instead of the AAR having to be something that we go out and find on our own time. It needs to be something that is brought to the public just as, you know, any other discipline is brought into the public. Like, you know, poli-sci or Mm -hmm. history or English, just as that is fed into the news, religious studies in the AAR should be too. Mm -hmm. because we're doing the same kind of academic work. It's just not being recognized as something valuable to current political climate because it's kind of seen as isolated or like... Just theology. Right.
5: Yeah. Exactly. It's a lot more complex than you think. So I guess the first thing to address um, in concluding all of this is what we see as the themes that tie all four of these addresses together. Um, because these aren't just isolated speeches, right? They're on a trajectory of, I guess, reflecting on what the AAR is and should be um, by the people who have been chosen to run the AAR. Um, And so, yeah, what do you think? What do you see as a theme that runs through?
1: So each of the presidential addresses work to point out what the AAR could be doing better Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they do so in very different and unique ways so each year it focuses on a different element that we need to work on so being available to the public having you know paying attention to the different values within the AAR uh, our moral duty to the other and I guess the the political duty to change young minds, so they all have different opinions on what not only we need to be, but what we need to work on. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're all very distinct visions. Yeah. And I don't know. Would you say that they're that they flow together, or do you think that every year there's a presidential address that just is? completely different do you think that there's like a consistent aim
5: I think um, yeah to some extent I see them sort of building we went backwards but I see them building on each other Mm -hmm. as each year passes Um, and I think there's a way where I don't see that happening with 2016's address but I think that has more to do with my understanding of it and my own particular fascist feelings about <laughs> it um but i think there is a point where it does tie in with the other addresses in this because all of them have a call to action in some way whether it's one we agree with or one that we have a lot of problems with um and i can see i keep going back to this 2016 address but i can see maybe because it's more fresh in my memory, but I can see the political context that it came out of. Um, And to me, that one sticks out as sort of an outlier, but at the same time, I can also see where that fits in. And so I see the four of these, along with the 2012 one, which we read for class, and the other ones that Don Weeb dealt with in uh, the politics of religious studies. We can sort of see this trajectory of... um, development of what this professional organization sees itself as and in recent years it's sort of taken on this flavor of um getting along with each other because we have our own differences within our organization but at the same time uh, being available and reaching out to people who aren't scholars and whether that's through, um, political activism in 2016 or education in 2013, there's some sort of outreach beyond our professional organization, which I think at the end of the day is kind of the point because we're not an entire, entirely insular organization. There's no point in having this organization if we're not going to engage and address things outside of the organization. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts. <laughs> um, so I know that we've
1: been in our in our five hundred two class, we've been talking about the the underlying theological aspect of the AAR, and listening to these recent addresses, you know, it's it's a little unclear as to the role of theology, but you can definitely see it in like I know that. In some of these, there's a preacher-esque tone. Mm -hmm. So, like, Zoloth's speech definitely has, you know, religion as unique because it deals with the beyond and its role in our understanding of death and all of these huge topics that I guess she doesn't believe other fields have to deal with much. So, like, in that respect, there is some kind of theological language, but it's definitely decreased since some of the very early um, speeches that we've read uh, a couple weeks ago in class. Mm -hmm. So yeah, instead of we need to convert our students and we need to give them access to the Bible, it's more of like, let's think of what religion can offer. Um, no in its like what are the fundamental qualities of religion that make it different from other fields right which i think is a, a better move <laughs> more inclusive maybe
5: yeah so i guess our takeaway from all of this is that they are is very complex and there's a lot of people with a lot of different viewpoints on what we do as an organization um so maybe the answer isn't that one person has the answer, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I, th- I think that's kind of the beauty of examining multiple addresses, too, mm-hmm. because we see multiple perspectives. And at the same time, we can see um, certain themes and agreements between those addresses. We also see those differences. And it's not necessarily about deciding who's right and who's wrong, but just understanding that there are multiple perspectives and those multiple perspectives are worth addressing. And like
1: everything we have learned in this department, there is no homogenous definition for any word, religion, nope. term, anything. So, Ever. What Especially. does anything mean? <laughs> Especially the AAR.
5: Yeah. So.
4: Cool, so thanks to Sarah and Emma for that discussion, Um, and as you guys can see from the data we analyzed in this podcast, but as well as our multitude of digital projects from the semester, we were able to identify themes in how the AR, and in particular its presidents, view the scholars uh, within the AR in terms of not only their work, but also their role as a professor, their teaching duties, and as a general member of society at large. Emma at one point mentioned the role of religious studies scholars in improving um, and facilitating difficult dialogues and for me that's also one of the main takeaways in addition to feeling out a place for theology and also a place in time for interdisciplinary work that can enhance the study of religion so that's all we have for you now thanks for listening and remember to study religion and find out
0: Study Religion is a production of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. For more information on our department, go to religion.ua.edu. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash R E-L at UA. Have a comment or a question about the podcast? You can email us at religiousstudies@ua.edu, at ua.edu. Or reach out to us on Twitter at Studyreligion. If you like to see pretty pictures of our beautiful historic campus and the wonderful Manly Hall where we are recording, follow us on Instagram at at @studyreligion. And if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us in iTunes and leave us a comment and a rating. That helps other folks find the show and makes you a very helpful person. Special thanks to Sierra Lawson, uh, Sarah Griswold, and Emma Gibson, our three MA students in religion and culture, for the hard work they put into this episode. And if uh, you're interested in our MA program, you can find out more information at our website. Roll Tide!
5: Are you not nervous at all? (laughs) <laughs> Not really cuz if like we hate something we say we can just delete it and move on.